0: But these ideas of electoral fraud were permeating for, uh, I'd say, the better part of a decade. This is not something Trump has come up with. I do not see how the party exists without him. In fact, I would think it's irrational for the party as an electoral institution, because what is a party? I mean, the main goal of a party is to get re-elected. The Oath Keepers, if they really go into an insurgency, mode, they would fragment almost immediately. They'll fragment for two reasons. One, there'll be a bunch of people who'll be like, well, I'm not in here to run an insurgency and I have a day job. The other set would be like, well, I would run it, but now I have Apache helicopters in my backyard. Not interested.
1: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments that you just heard were made by Dr. Vasabjeet Banerjee, and in this episode, we will be chatting with him on what else but the political chaos in the United States of America. Dr. Banerjee is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of Mississippi, where he specializes in electoral competition, contentious politics, political violence and international affairs. We're going to be asking Banerjee whether American democracy really is at risk of failure, what the likelihood and potential shape of social violence in American cities might be, and where the Biden administration might focus in terms of international security. Let's hear that conversation right now. G'day, Banerjee. Welcome to the National Security Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me over on the podcast
1: there have been many claims thrown about to describe the leadership style of the Trump administration, terms like authoritarian, populist, and even as far as people calling them fascist. Where does this presidency rate on the scale of things? Where are the similarities with countries like Venezuela, Belarus, and Hungary? And where are these types of claims completely blown out of proportion?
0: Well, to begin with, and I think, let me just frame it, these claims are blown out of proportion. Uh, America is far from being an authoritarian country. Uh, If there is a a hint of authoritarianism, then it would be perhaps because President Trump is um, not a professional politician, and he is what we would call an accidental authoritarian, in the sense that he does not understand where the limits of the presidential institution are and where the powers of the presidential institution are. In what... uh, Professor Don Monaghan from um, Dartmouth calls the Green Lantern Presidency in the sense that he believes, akin to many Americans, that the Presidency has these amazing powers to rally people, to pressure the legislators, or to arm twist legislators into doing what the President wants. Well, if you are a professional politician, you would quickly recognize that the President actually has very limited powers because. There's just so much institutional work that they have to sort of, you know, go through committees and subcommittees, uh, sort of norms and long held understandings and compacts that are not mentioned there and and seniority in the the Senate, so on and so forth. So so they have to go via these institutional setups, these norms, um, sort of what we call, you know, log rolling, you know, in, in the Senate and so on and so forth, where People give certain deals in the expectation that other deals will be offered to them. And it requires years of knowing politics to understand which legislator wants what, uh, how do they want it and when do they want it in order to pass the legislation. So President Trump approaches this presidency as what uh, Professor Julia Azari, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, as a sort of a 19th century president in some ways um uh, he sort of he, he he thinks that the president is um sort of runs a runs his show with a small office and he's he's out there. Um uh, and I, I don't want to I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think that it's he he does not appreciate what the current modern institu- institution of the presidency is and the power of the Senate and the Congress. So that's one. And so he's been pressing the wrong buttons and he's been be shouting very loudly when he should be speaking softly. And that's another issue. So that's that's one thing. He just doesn't know what he's doing. And that's that's one part of the accidental authoritarian. The other thing that he's an accidental authoritarian is when he does push these buttons, and you would think that nothing would come off it, right? Turns out things start happening. Things start happening because the power of the presidency has increased so much in the last 30, 40, even 50 years. That he presses these things and people are like, well, nothing's going to happen. Nobody expects anything to happen. Things start happening. For example, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, does have what would amount to paramilitary forces. And they can hire private contractors to come out and supplement these forces. All of a sudden you have what would amount to federal paramilitary forces facing off protesters uh, in, in, in cities. And so that was not expected, right? And I don't think uh, even sort of very astute politicians probably recognized it. But it's happening because the power of the presidency has increased so much, especially after 911, with regards to internal security and, and monitoring and so on and so forth. So these are not, uh, he's not inherently on, on a Chavista part, other than the sort of the populism. But uh, it has turned into. Some of the sort of the aspects of authoritarianism, if if I may. So it's partly because he does not understand the limitations and actual powers of the institution, and the other is that when he does make mistakes, all of a sudden these things that should hold him back don't exist or facilitate further encroachments onto sort of liberties, etc so i wouldn't call him uh, an authoritarian in the vein of chavez at all and frankly given four years uh, the american system has held up quite well uh, as opposed to anything in latin america uh, in especially you know if you're talking about venezuela it did take chavez quite a bit of time to overcome the democratic institutions near about a decade i will say but um, American institutions have held up quite well. The midterm elections went against him, and obviously he lost the, the popular and electoral college vote earlier this month.
1: We will get into how resilient the, the US system has been in the face of an inexperienced president and one who may feel that he deserves more power than he may be able to wrangle out of that system uh, a little bit later. But First, I want to ask, should the bureaucracy and the professionals that have been surrounding the president, should they have been doing more to, say, control him or to bring him into line with the orthodoxy of the office a little bit more than they have?
0: Well, I think that there are two issues at play. One is an institutional issue. The United States is perhaps the only first world country, the only developed country to lack a permanent civil service. Uh, Certainly nothing akin to the Commonwealth. And that creates this this issue of political appointees, which is quite peculiar, actually. And political appointees, of course, work at the pleasure of uh, the president. So there's already an embedded sort of incentive not to oppose the president's will, to oppose his desires. So there's that, because there's no real institutional protection at the top. So there's part one. Part two, I don't think it is actually the the bureaucrats' position, their 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 place to tell the president what to do. And that again goes back to the whole inex- inexperience thing. There, there's an assumption, and that's built over decades, that the president will know what to do, will be advised by his close circle about what to do correctly. And um, so it's In both those cases, there's been an institutional problem. There's been a sort of a a problem with the way that the bureaucrats are in the sense that they're not there to inform the president about what is right or wrong, because there is an assumption that the president already knows. And that's, I think, the cause of the failures we've seen. A lot of the failure has been due to what I would call an impetuous nature of President Trump. In the sense that he, he's gone out and he's tweeted these things. And we've, we've later seen that the policy had not yet been developed. Uh, it was still in, in the process of, of coalescing into, into something concrete. And in that way, he's actually hobbled the policymaking. He has actually undermined his own cause. So in, in that way, the, he, he sort of, was it the position of the bureaucrat to stop him from tweeting? I mean that that really is something, you know. I, I don't think that that would have been co- quite correct for any bureaucrat to do that, in any way, even in his cabinet.
1: Well, fortunately for the bureaucracy, I, I don't think that we're likely to see a another president use Twitter in the same way that President Trump has. Uh, but moving on to the to the next issue, we're we're looking now at a what is, in imagery at least, a contested election where the president is refusing to concede defeat. Uh, Indeed, he's actually claiming that the the results and the outcome is unacceptable because he claims fraud and so on and so on. Is there any kind of analogue that we can look to in the world where we've seen other countries go through these kind of experiences?
0: Well, right south of the border, Mexico has had this problem with the current president of Mexico, when he's run unsuccessfully for president for the presidential elections, Manuel Lopez Abrador, I think twice, he said, you know, he didn't accept the electoral results and carried on this, uh, this theater state um, and theater inauguration, right? You know, whilst the original inauguration, the, the proper inauguration was going on. And he sort of, you know, he riled up his base. And he, but what it does, is there's the theater part of it, but there's also an undermining of the institutions of, of the power and uh, of, of, of the symbolism of the institution if you constantly have pretenders uh, arising. And, it, and in an electoral system, it undermines the legitimacy of the electoral system. If you have these pretenders claiming that the electoral system is rigged. I mean, after all, I mean, the, the presidential system in the United States is essentially derivative of the British, um, you know, one would say the Cromwellian system or the Stuart system. And, um, uh, if you have a situation where you have many pretenders to the to the chief executive who claim that, you know, there's been sort of electoral chicanery and so on and so forth, but if there is no preventing that, that, there's no media consensus, there's no public consensus, then what you have is a collapse of the legitimacy of the way in which the chief executive is brought to power. And in some ways the delegitimization of the Mexican political system. Now, remember, Mexico really became fully de- democratic only in 2000. So there was a lot of hope about that electoral system. But so the, delegit- the delegitimization of the electoral system, a part, part of it has to be uh, laid on the shoulders, on the backs of AMLO, as he's called, Manuel López Obrador, for constantly challenging the system in such a fashion.
1: So what is the future of Trumpism without Trump actually being in the White House? Will the Republicans now back away from Trumpism, or do they even want to, given the amount of support that still exists for Donald Trump in the
0: US? I am not an Americanist. I do not study American politics as a professional. I I have published a paper on on American politics, but I approach it from a comparativist position, which is essentially that Trump is a populist, and he has taken over in some ways, is a hostile takeover of the GOP. The GOP had its own elites. And there were divisions within those elites, which I think he has exploited. And there were elites who wanted to carry on the sort of small government and, um, and free market republicanism that, we, that the world has come to know and Americans have come to know very well. There were others who were talking about compassionate conservatism, reaching out to minorities and so on and so forth. This is the Rubio wing. But we've seen that, that after Trump's presence and, and the the heft of his base within the Republican Party, that his form of politics, his appeals, are uh, more effective than that of the rest of the Republican Party. Now, some might say, "Oh, well, that's not the case, etc." I don't know, and that and I'd like to see the data and, I, and to to see you know how it turned out, whether people voted against him down ticket. Whether there were situations where people did not vote for Trump, but they voted for the Republicans down the ticket, which is the whole Republicans voting against Trump line. We don't know that. And so um, we'll have to see the data. But in cases where populists come to power, they, they create new political cleavages across the world. I mean, across Latin America. When Perón came to power, the old politics of Argentina was over. Same with Vargas in Brazil. Same with Lula in Brazil. Somewhat, Lula is less because he's more trad- traditional left, I would say in some ways. All of these pink tide leaders in Latin America, Morales in um, Bolivia. Uh, so, you know, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. So we have these uh, shifts when populists come to power. This is the political system changes. And normally they come to power with their own political party in some ways. But President Trump has taken over an existing political party. That's, that's what, that's what the problem is. There's this existing apparatus with their existing commitments and existing institutional background, so on and so forth. But I do not see how the party exists without him. In fact, I would think it's irrational for the party as an electoral institution, because what is a party? I mean, the main goal of a party is to get reelected, right? It's, it's not there to, you know, write books or send out, that's a think tank, you know, send out policy uh, articles. It's meant to get people elected to to Parliament, to, to Congress, Senate, and the presidency. So I don't see the party leaving Trump. I think this is the new reality, based on other cases that I've studied. But then again, I do not have the data right now. And uh, there's been some talk about, because so much of it was mail-in voting, there, there's been some talk about whether the data that was first collected at exit polls and all of that is is correct. So I would like to see that data from more from more specialised people in order to make a decision on whether the Republican Party, as a separate entity, as a distinct entity, can even survive, or whether it's it's essentially the people who voted for Trump are voting down ticket for other Republicans. That's that's the key question. Does the United States
1: have an independent federal election commission that oversees elections and the conduct of candidates, parties, and financing, and so on?
0: Uh, it does not. It has a federal electoral commission that overlooks finances, reviews finances, but nothing is compared to any normal uh, large democracy, especially one that's so you know developed one. Uh, it, it doesn't. There is one that does exist, federal electoral commission, but it's it, the, the electoral commission does not make rules for the elections. It does not draw districts. It does not monitor the elections. You know, it doesn't oversee in that in that capacity, and certainly does not enforce the rules in that capacity. So, coming coming from a background where you know, when I've studied Mexico, I've studied India, and we've looked at Lesotho. And, you know, I've studied elections across the world. In uh, the US, doesn't have anything of that com- comparable to that.
1: It seems quite strange that such an old and well-established democracy wouldn't have such an independent body. Is there any reasoning why it doesn't?
0: Yeah, precisely because it's old. Precisely because it's established. You see, if you, if you, if you I mean, it's, let, me, let me go back and, and talk about something historically. You know, folks don't understand this somehow, in America especially, which is kind of peculiar. The parliamentary system was an evolution of the presidential system. What America really has is 18th century British, uh, the British 18th century system, which is the king still has enormous powers, but uh, the parliament has the power to raise taxes. And the key institution in some ways is the House of Lords. And in this case, in America, the House of Lords is, was indirectly elected, and the president has still indirectly elected via the Electoral College. And you still have the House of, the House of Commons, really, which is the Congress, which is the, the, which is not the Congress, the House of Representatives, right? And it's, and, it, and it's a highly federated place with, you know, with every state has like powers because the states actually gave up powers to join the United States. The states existed as independent colonies. Now, the same could be talked about in terms of Australia or Canada before the unions. But there's one big difference. Is that the British Army stayed in Australia? The British Crown stayed as an ordering, a unifying ordering force. There was no such unifying ordering force in America. This was off their own volition. So, during the during the period when it comes together, uh, the states could retain a lot of power, uh, unlike um, Commonwealth realms. Um, especially, I'm talking about the dominions, the the, the old Commonwealth, and so. The the American system, precisely because it's so established and old, um, has archaic institutions electorally. Now, these institutions had problems in the 18th century. We know that. They had problems in the 19th century. There's much has been written about it. You know, you had Tammany Hall, machine politics of the boss tweed and so on and so forth in New York, in Chicago. Some claim it still continues in Chicago. Um, you've had uh, uh, the, the Dixiecrats in the South, who've sort of undermined democracy after losing losing the Civil War, and, and they've you know they've literacy tests and property rights tests, which are more reminiscent of a place like Rhodesia than a place like a um, place like Southern United States, frankly speaking. So precisely because of the the the, the age and the established nature. Of the U.S. institutions, some of the electoral uh, institutions, electoral rules, and so on and so forth, are quite archaic. Well, up to the standards of what would qualify as modern institutions. Now, I'd like to take it another in another direction, which is that it's also difficult to change these institutions, because, uh, but to, in order to create these institutions, you have to have uh, the go-ahead from all the states. Might even require constitutional amendment to have an independent federal electoral commission so it's actually quite difficult to get one in and it doesn't have one i do not know what the solution is i personally would love to have one but what how would we go ahead with that and i think that there may be certain ways in which you know you could have you could have certain types of elections for example national elections rather than the state elections done but uh but there there would be quite a bit of opposition do you do you think that
1: an independent commission would be able to get closure and get clarity on the situation, allow the country to move forward, or would we still be in this same situation anyway?
0: Well, I think an independent commission, really, I mean, in the future would would be able to, especially if they set the rules and they had they had stable rules across in terms of counting, in terms of monitoring, who gets access, so on and so forth. There there would be, I mean, those would those would be the rules. And uh especially if there were international monitors in the elections, uh, and and as well as just just the rules themselves, very clear access and you know, the, the commission would allow access for the media, and, uh, and so it it would be it, I, I I do believe that and this is actually you've asked me a, a the question is two layered I think one is just mere fact of having neutral institutions would increase trust. The second issue is why do we need these institutions? Why now? You could say, "Well, Trump has accused people of, of you know, fraud and and so on and so forth." But these ideas of electoral fraud were permeating in the United States for, uh, I'd say, the better part of a decade. This is not something Trump has come up with. This has been going on. I mean, you know, if you're on social media, these ideas of electoral fraud and fake voters and so on and so forth coming, and this has been going on for the better part of a decade. Now, these accusations of electoral fraud, for me, this is my personal take, is that they reveal an atmosphere where the norms, the accepted social or what not gone, political registers, the political consensus, the norms are collapsing. And why is this collapsing? It's collapsing because the United States is becoming a more diverse society. And, these, and this, these things happen. They happen normally in post-colonial societies. In India, the Federal Electoral Commission was a sort of a toothless body. And it functioned perfectly well when India was sort of, you know, the post-colonial era, when you had Nehru's and Indira Gandhi's. And Indira, it started collapsing under Indira Gandhi. And that's led to sort of the collapse, the interregnum, the non-democratic interregnum, and so on and so forth. But the reason it started collapsing is new political actors start coming, new social groups start coming in. And the older social groups feel, well, how are they coming in? There must be something wrong with the system. These these people are not supposed to be elected. or the, And the newer social groups think, well, how, what are the older social groups doing? They must be doing something to remain in power since we don't support them. You see what I'm saying? So it's it's not just Trump. I mean, these things have existed, the accusations of voter fraud, especially from GOP uh, related um, politicians and, and thinkers have been permeating in, in sort of the US discourse, political discourse, for I'd say the better part of a decade.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. So on one hand, you've been talking about the age of the system has created this great depth of institutions. But on the other hand, you're also talking about the potential for norms collapsing as well. If Trump does leave the White House without conceding defeat and continues to rally support by claiming systematic fraud, is American democracy under threat or is it, is it heading towards a, a certain kind of change, a fork in the road, so to speak?
0: I think it's a change in the – it's a fork in the road. I, I do believe that they, that America is looking to a, a systemic backsliding of democracy. It's tough to deal with it because, I, because I, I I don't think anybody could have anticipated this ten years ago, certainly not myself. But what what we have in the United States is, frankly, two things that have' created a perfect storm. Uh, in which uh, Trump has sort of has surfed this storm, but the storm is not of his creation. The two things are, America's had an industrial revolution, the third industrial revolution, which is uh, the tech revolution. And America is the only country in the world which has had two industrial revolutions. The second, the, the, the electric and uh, chemical uh, industrial revolution, as well as the third, the high-tech revolution. And the third industrial revolution has sort of, really changed american societies in unanticipated ways nobody could have expected this massive demographic shift to the coast these these huge uh, urban corridors the the collapse of these small town economies centered on manufacturing uh, they were talked about people thought about them when in the late 1990s there was this idea that if you had uh, if you had the internet then you could work anywhere you could be living in a small town in mississippi and working in new york well it turns out that's not the case and 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 a lot of communities have been devastated. So there's there's that. So there's there's been an industrial revolution with its new actors arising, new social classes arising in America, and so ethnic groups as well. Hispanics have increased in numbers. Um, that's one. On the other hand, because of this diversity that's increasing in the United States, partly related to the to this third industrial revolution, you have a ethnic hegemonic an ethnic hegemonic transition. In other words. It means that the white, uh, white Americans will no longer be in, a, in an ethnic majority in the United States, right? And they are looking at a future in which they're one, probably the largest, but one of the other sort of groups. And it's, it's quite difficult for some people to accept that. And we have to come to terms. And in some ways, I, I stand in a minority, uh, because I believe that we have to come to terms that some people feel quite uncomfortable with that reality. Uh, especially people for whom that status that, of being, being white American has meant access. And much has been written about it. Has meant access to economic goods, social mobility, so on and so forth. So there is this, this idea that, that at least in some parts of America, among Trump supporters, that they're falling behind. And there are others who want to join this set as well, because they too feel that their social values are no longer the values that are being positioned by the left and what I call the default Trumpists, people from Latin America, people from South Asia. And I I know a lot of people like that who feel that, you know, they don't want an increased government involvement. They don't want, you know, socialism, so on and so forth. So they want to join up with uh, Trump supporters. And so it's not really a coalition where everybody has the same goal. It's a coalition. People have different goals, but they're together because they think they can broadly reach the same place. Mm-hmm. But it's these two things. One is this ethnic hegemonic transition, and the other is, is this industrial revolution that's created major economic dislocations and social dislocations. And Trump has has sort of uh, ridden this, this. He's done a fantastic job on surfing, over these tsunamis that have sort of come together, and partly the the secret of Trump is that he articulates in a way probably not appreciated by by people from from urban areas, from uh, college educated backgrounds in certain ways, this this desire for stability, this desire for order, so a, a, almost a restorationist revolution in some ways. Now, whether he delivers on it, I do not know, but that has to be taken into consideration that he does have support in the elections show that. So it's not, it's not about Trump, but the U.S. democracy is suffering because of these larger social shifts, which, by the way, he is the first properly positioned politician. He's the first presidential level politician who articulated, look, this change has happened. And you've had winners, and people have been writing books about the winners, and people have been saying, oh, it's it's all we're all getting along just fine, and things have been going along quite smoothly. But there are these losers, and I don't mean losers in a pejorative sense, but I mean losers in a technical sense. These people have who've lost jobs, and their jobs have been shift, shipped elsewhere, and they work in sectors that are never coming back, and they live in places that nobody wants to live in anymore. These things are not off Trump. They are part of the larger structural change. And work has been done showing how essentially urban and rural America has has divided because people no longer sort of intermarry, they no longer live in the same places, and so on and so forth. So Trump, is it's not just about him. He represents broader socioeconomic transformations in America.
1: To, to follow on from that, you've you've highlighted two long term trends here. You, you've looked at the tide of technological change as well as um, a demographic change, but we're also seeing one very short, sharp, acute change happening right now, especially in the US, and that is the COVID nineteen pandemic. What kind of an influence do you think that that is likely to have on this shifting landscape of voting patterns, identity, and the way people live their lives in the US and how that plays out in US politics?
0: Yeah, that's the million dollar question. It's going to have two completely different effects. One is that once the COVID's away, everything has just calmed down, people move on and money comes back, the economy comes roaring back. And people come out of their houses and they look at their neighbors and they say, well, you know what, Joe, I really miss talking to you. And I know that I don't agree with you, but heck, I haven't talked to anyone in in nine months, so I'll, I'll have a word with you. Or, which is increasingly likely, there's going to be sharp divides. Those are divides cut across regions, those divides cut across class about people who could afford to take 10 or 11 months away and people who couldn't. They had to put on their masks and work at places where probably they didn't want to work. And I think that, you know, there are people who don't, you know, there's this claim that people don't believe there's COVID and there's all this sort of, you know, sort of politicization of the COVID crisis. But I think it's quite highly underestimated what, um, I'm forgetting the professor, uh, political science theory, that how many people have justified this fact is there's no COVID because they cannot afford to believe in COVID. Because if they do, then they'd have to stay at home, and which means that they probably have to starve because they don't have jobs that are stable. So we we need to, you know, and I forget, I forget the technical term for this, but there is, I mean, there's some political science research, but they don't like the conclusion, the policy end of it. So then they say, well, they work backwards from it. And they say, well, I don't believe in COVID. It's the same with environmentalism, right? I mean, I don't believe in climate change. Well, why don't you believe it? Because that would mean that I'd lose my job. So uh, people work backwards. So if that's the situation, then it would open up uh, tremendous amounts of uh, cross-cutting social divisions and social cleavages, um, which, which would have, obviously, terrible consequences if they're not dealt with.
1: In your previous response, you've you've identified one of the social factors that has supported Trumpism in the US, and, and that, that is that, that sense of dissatisfaction, displacement, and that sense of losing access to privilege previously enjoyed. And I'm speaking largely about white American men here. These are the, uh, some of the same men that we saw out marching on the street just this weekend in the Million Maga March or the Proud Boys Parade, whatever term you'd like to use. Does Trump implicitly threaten violence using his supporters and some of the unhinged? And if he does, what 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 is the end that he's aiming at here?
0: Well, I mean, it's rational for him, right? He's lost the election. He wants to. He wants some access to the, to the GOP. How's he going to get access to the GOP? I don't know how much funds he has. He can he can go to these rallies, and how oh, slowly those audiences will get smaller and smaller since he doesn't have access to resources. We know that from political science. So he is probably going to, uh, you know, he's going to use these groups um, sort of a leveraging mechanism. They respond to him. And in and and, the, and the, it's in the GOP's interest to also leverage these groups as sort of a radical fringe and talk when they have discussions with the Dems, right? I mean, that, you know, you have these people, they allied with Trump and they're armed and dangerous. And look, we cannot give you this deal because these guys are armed and dangerous out there and, and we have to keep them happy. I'm sorry about it. You've seen this sort of dynamic play in, you know, with with the Sinn Fein and during the troubles, right, in, in Northern Ireland. They do serve a purpose, and it's as terrible as as that might sound. Uh, so, so they, I do not think that President Trump wants to incite a rebellion. Uh, I do think he's 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 delivering overheated rhetoric. And uh, my fear is not that he will lead a rebellion of any sort. I, I don't think that's possible. I think uh, because these groups are not connected uh, in any any organisational way, they do not have the logistics to carry out anything near near about a sustained, uh, large scale civil war of any 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 sort. But what what would happen is that you would have sporadic attacks. And could he be held responsible? We don't know. But his re- heated rhetoric. Would lead to to would would be considered incitement in some ways, and it's rational for him because that's that's how he would get leverage with segments of of the Republican Party, and um and that's and that would be rational for the Republicans. To what, what, to use what, what does
1: he want leverage for? What what will he use that leverage to to succeed in doing?
0: Well, I think that he if he has political ambitions for himself or his family. Or for acolytes, I don't know about the acolytes, but certainly for the family. Or if he wants to be a kingmaker, right? Choose his successor within the party. There's this understanding of democracy and insurgency being a dichotomy, but really, frequently it isn't. Uh, Mainstream politicians will use insurgents either um, actively, tell them, you know, to attack opposition and so on and so forth during, before, after elections, or leverage the insurgency in order to get votes or to get better deals from the state or national government. We know that. I mean, that happens frequently. So um, I, I don't see anything different in the United States.
1: So let's speculate here for a minute. What if on their way out of office in January, Trump and some of his team make comments that can be interpreted by his base as a call to action What do you think the outcome would be? Is serious violence a plausible risky? You've mentioned that civil war is just not possible. Um, But is something more a line of an incipient insurgency uh, conducted by groups that are no more connected or organised by anything other than their belief the election was stolen? Or would it be something more like randomised acts of violence by the more unhinged people in society, such as the Comet Pizza shooting or the Hoover Dam siege, or the guy that sent the pipe bombs to CNN and so on? What do you think is a plausible outcome if trump is very loose with some of his rhetoric at the end of his term
0: so let's let's do the you know the usual decision tree out here trump announces something right and the oath keepers have already said they're going to resist okay good enough Uh,
1: they've actually said they've got people surrounding or people placed around washington do you think that that's an actual true claim do you think it's likely that
0: they have actually deployed people it doesn't matter. I mean, if they, if they do have deployed people. The second, the second thing is, there's a difference between rhetoric and actual action, right? I can tell you that I have 10 people standing. I have no idea where they'll actually fire their guns or they just walk away when they realize what's... what's because I have no enforcement mechanism either. <laughs> so so what would happen is that the, I, I strongly believe this. The Oath Keepers, if they really go into an insurgency mode, then they would fragment almost immediately They'll fragment for two reasons. One, there'll be a bunch of people who will be like, well, I'm not in here to run an insurgency. You know, I have a day job. Out. So that's one set. The other set would be like, well, I would run it, but now I have Apache helicopters in my backyard. Not interested. You know, the thing will fragment. And then you'll have a hard base. I mean, this has happened in the U.S. in the 19, late 1960s and through the 70s. where And th- th- these things happen on the left at that point of time. As the New Deal coalition was collapsing, when you had these student groups, right? Symbionese Liberation Army um, and uh, the Weathermen, so on and so forth, conducting attacks, and they were urban groups, but they, but they, you know, the kidnappings and attacks and so on and so forth. And uh, I expect those those kinds of things to happen here, uh, in, probably in rural areas as well, given sort of this, this is, would be a rural based movement. Um, but what is rural, because you know, in the US around about two percent of the population lives in rural areas, so we don't really talk about peri-urban areas. You know, these things will happen. I mean, you'll have small attacks, some group ways, some group-based, some individual lone wolves radicalized through YouTube. Again, it's quite common across the world, watching YouTube videos and then going out and doing something on their own. Um yeah, I mean that's that's the extent of it which which I see. I mean, and the problem is with leveraging a violent actor, and not, you need a calibration, you need to be able to control said violent allies, right, your proxy actors. And I, fundamentally, going back to the earlier question, I I do not believe that President Trump, or frankly, anybody, would have the capacity to control these actors once the process starts. And this is this is again another issue that's happened, another problem that's happened across many different countries in Asia, in Africa, uh, where you have sort of these incitements. Then these groups come into action, and then the initially the political leaders and you know the mainstream democratic leaders are in a position where they use them or leverage them, but then they slip out of control, and then they carry on their own life. They are either repressed or they sort of have this. Weird twilight existence for years. And um, so, you know, unfortunately, there's no flashbang ending to this. I just peter out.
1: Well, that's probably actually preferable. But so let's assume that does happen. The Biden takes the presidency in January. Any domestic violence is random and minor, and there's no insurgencies and crazies go back to conspiracies around vaccinations and 5G. Biden's team gets to turn their attention to foreign policy, even more so if they face an obstructionist Republican held Senate where do you see the main challenges and opportunities for the United States in the coming four years under a Biden presidency?
0: You know, I'm not, again, I'm not an Americanist, I'm a comparativist. So I, I would say that the Biden presidency has to really create, and I, I'm going to say this, I don't like the term, but a new deal. Because society has been transformed in the US in, in the last 20 or 30 years. Post-Cold War, United States has changed immensely. There's a lot of wealth has been created, but a lot of inequality as well. A lot of people are dislocated. Uh, people feel, uh, on the one hand, that they've lost their privileges. On the other hand, they're not being granted their privileges uh, as citizens. So there needs to be a coming together um, and and a new deal, a comprehensive new deal from infrastructure spending. Uh, we need new you know money spent on highways. On um, on bridges, roads, you know, and President Trump talked talked about this actually, and he could have cleaved the Democratic coalition if he moved ahead with it. He didn't, and that again goes back to his inexperience. I think he didn't know how to how to move ahead. But but he talked about it, and so I think President Biden should move ahead with that to rebuild infrastructure, employ millions of Americans. Millions of Americans will be thrown out of their jobs. And the kinds of the gig economy jobs aren't aren't really jobs. It's a fancy name for the casualization of labor. So firstly, President Biden needs an economic revival of the United States, not in the sense of some people making money, but for a comprehensive, social, equitable social development. So that's part one. Part two, the United States has to understand that the, the future competition, economic, military, diplomatic, does not come. From the European side, but it comes from the Asian side. and it comes from China. and this was this was a problem that Britain faced in 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 the early 20th century when Britain thoroughly underestimated the uh, the threat from Japan. And uh, America is in danger because uh, especially if if certain people come into the Biden administration who have been sort of uh, sympathetic or, or um, to, to, to the Chinese cause, that America will take that lightly. And President Biden has to take the Chinese threat seriously because China has joined every international institution and sought to follow the rules in the letter and undermine the institution's spirit. China has been threatening all its neighbors with territorial aggression. um, And China has been threatening Taiwan with complete takeover, subjugation. So the United States does need to take the Chinese threat seriously. So that that's the second thing. The the third thing is he needs to calm nerves. And I and I don't think calming nerves means anodyne speeches about, you know, coming together. And I, and that's the third thing goes up with the first thing. He needs to have a proper social transformation, not high rhetoric. Uh, President Obama offered quite a bit of high rhetoric. He needs to actually do substantial policy making in order to make that come true. Um, and and you know and make people come true, uh, you know, make people's dreams about what it means to be an American come true. And fourth, which is the immigration issue in the United States cannot be addressed within the United States. A lot of immigrants in the United from in the United States, especially those who come here without papers, who um, who have precarious legal status or lack legal status, come here because of the push factors from um, Central America, Uh, and the the solution which has been developed and and, and I think implemented successfully in northern Mexico is to create jobs and development and political stability in Central America, to democratize Central America, and to make sure, along with democratization, uh, that there's effective uh, counter-narcotics measures in Central America, This does not mean just a punitive uh, way to do it, but also uh, sort of you know develop democracy, invest in Central America, probably take uh, jobs that would have gone to China, manufacturing jobs that would have gone to China, and 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 get relocate them in Central America, some of the jobs, and thus creating um, sort of a Central American. Uh, hub where Central Americans can can live in their own societies in El Salvador in Guatemala, and and n- do not have to endanger their lives in order to come to the United States for a better life for a bit, for more economic opportunities, and I, and that in in turn would help the United States by creating a political consensus around immigration by helping people on both sides of the aisle in a humane and sustainable way.
1: Democratisation has been a project of America's in Latin America previously. Do you think that there's a greater chance of success without an ideological counterpart such as uh, the Soviet Union?
0: I think democratisation must be a pillar of the United States' policy toward Latin America, in particular because the United States' current competition is China, and China is moving in fast. It's one of the largest trading um, partners in Latin America. It's moved into Central America. It owns real estate around the Panama Canal. And let me just put it this way. Panama Canal is to the United States, whilst the Suez Canal was to Britain. No country should be able to control the Panama Canal in any form other than the United States or countries that are allied or amenable to United States' interests wholly. And at present, we see China has been moving into Central America, has been elbowing out uh, Taiwan in the region, as well as China is now, as we all know, a major trading partner of Latin American countries, such as Brazil. Brazil and brazil is in other ways under the bolsonaro administration it has grown closer to the united states but the economic realities are the economic realities they will outlast the bolsonaro administration so the united states must have a counter which is democratically elected governments now what does democracy mean in latin america democracy means not just elections i think the united states has focused too much on just elections it also means social peace, it means economic development, it means supporting where possible programs that would lead to equitable uh, economic development. Giving up on the ideas that, you know, small government is good government and free markets for one and all, this is sort of some sort of, uh, you know, uh, what they used to call the Washington consensus and shoving it down people's throats or bilateral agreements uh, where the United States is more privileged, but rather working through existing organisations such as Mercosur and allowing these existing organisations to sort of, you know, tell the United States what, what could what could be done in that area, and the United States has to approach it in a more understanding fashion. And I think it will, because domestically the United States, I think, is also moving away from from the free market. Uh, small government orthodoxy. So what I mean is U.S. must have democracy, but not just electoral democracy, but a more sort of equitable economy. It must support a more equitable economic outcomes and social outcomes in Latin America that would help sustain and create probably a more substantial form of democracy in Latin America.
1: Banerjee, you've been very generous with your time, so I don't want to uh, take up too much more, but I would like to ask the final question, which is one that we put to most of our pod guests, and that is, what has been one experience that has influenced you and your career? This can be anything from a book that you've read, a speech that you've heard, a person that you've known, or even a work of art that has inspired you. What was one of those seminal moments that has shaped the way that you understand the world?
0: You know, I thought about this whilst I was running. My father made sure he, he was, got his medical degree in, in Britain. He was a surgeon and he practiced with the NHS and he worked with the NHS. And he made sure that, that we'd hearted a poem by Kipling called If. And, I, and I, it was quite dreary by hearting. It's really, I mean, you know, memorizing it. And today I realized that, that it's, it sort of provides me with a code of conduct at any point of time. What should I do? And and I believe that my politics, in some ways, has also been shaped by that poem. And I don't want to elocute the poem, but it's about what is a man, really. And this is Kipling's idea of, of a father telling his son what is a man. And a man has to be in control of themselves and has to be detached. And at the same time, a man has to be involved with the world and it's a fantastic poem and that poem really i mean is in some ways you know a joke with people i i, I do believe that, that 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 particular poem has 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 had an enormous effect in my life and i'll tell you the the reason that as somebody who's, who's not a liberal um you know I, I'm, I'm sort of you know one would call it i used to be a, a small government free market sort of conservative and i've i've shifted to what what would be considered you know a Disraeli conservative if, if benjamin Disraeli, the british prime minister you know the, the one nation conservatism um so i've i've shifted uh, over the last sort of couple of years in some ways and the reason that i went in and i and i thought which candidate actually tallies up to this poem and uh and i, I remember this line and if I, if i recall it correctly this is a couple of lines that says Uh, You know, if you've seen, you've given your life for, is broken and you stoop and build them up with worn out tools. And I thought there is only one candidate who who abides by this code in that sense. So I think this, this code really shapes me as a person who believes in individual responsibility more than sort of government responsibility, but also believes that people have to be helped out. And we as a society have to sort of come together at certain points of time. So that's, that's my little contribution in terms of <laughs> inspirational things.
1: Well, I know just as many of the National Security Podcast subscribers will be doing, I will also be searching that poem and having a read. Dr. Vasubjit Banerjee, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And a big thanks to Dr. Vasabji Banerjee for joining us on the National Security Podcast today. You too can join in the discussion by hitting us up on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly using at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at PolicyForumPod, or you can go old school by dropping us an email using podcast at PolicyForum.net. Don't forget to give us a rating on whatever platform you pod with and feel free to drop us some feedback. We do read it and we do take it seriously. You can let us know what you think might improve the show or any issues you'd like us to discuss in the future. So thanks very much for listening to this episode today. We will be back with more of our special speaker series to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the National Security College where we speak to leaders of the Australian national security community. So thanks very much for listening today and we'll be back to speak to you soon on the next episode of the National Security Podcast.